Hello and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to. I'm Jorge Rocha. I'm Jamie Peck. And I'm Aaron Thorpe. And this is our second episode on our series on socialist feminism. And particularly, we're talking on our second text on the Russian Marxist thinker, revolutionary, and government minister, Alexandra Kolontai. Pew, 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 pew. (laughs) Now, it's actually part of a much longer series we're going to be doing on socialist feminism throughout the podcast. But Mm -hmm. this little mini series is choosing to focus on Kolontai Mm -hmm. because she is in many ways, um, maybe not the first socialist feminist, but certainly a foundational figure in the field as well as an influential figure in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I personally had never read any of her work before. So I think, uh, you know, not only is she foundational, but I think for any, I think any budding uh, socialist or anybody like newly coming to the left, um, I got to it, her work way too late, but uh, better late than never. And I think, yeah, it's a foundational text that I think is important for everybody to check out, you know. Yeah. And in particular, for those who are more, more familiar with a feminist thinking and are mm. making their way into, you know, dabbling, interested or just curious about, or have already been, you know, quote unquote, sold. And we don't mm-hmm. like to use that terminology, but convinced, maybe mm-hmm. better, better word, on socialism. And drank but the Kool Aid. Yeah, the red Kool Aid. But haven't, but haven't really heard the argument from a from a feminism from a social point of view. This is a great way to start, and this is why we're doing this series as well. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you're into feminism, and you're like, "What's the deal with socialism?" Right. That's fine too. Absolutely. Yeah, one hundred percent. So. To, to begin, um, but bef- actually before we begin, uh, it's important to mention that those of us on, on the show, we create a lot of content that's like you know very in depth in terms of theory, history. Try to get uh, interviews from people who are involved in the movement and also big figures, and you know much much more of it of it is still in development and forthcoming. Be stay tuned, and also and also other things in terms of talking about culture. This has costs in terms of production, you know, making sure our producer Paul is, you know, correctly and, and well paid <laughs> to make sure that, you know, he's doing the best content he possibly can. And also he's a happy sure, man, indeed. Absolutely. And making mm-hmm. sure that we're able to continually and consistently provide very important content that is helpful for growing the movement and also for providing a socialist perspective, Marxist perspective, communist perspective on theory, history, and the world. And so, unfortunately, we, we have to do this. We're saying, if you want to help us promote the show and support it, go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash everybodylovescommunism or our fans.fm at fans.fm slash everybodylovescommunism. Should be in the show notes, of course, but just to make sure, be sure to support us. And if you like what you heard and you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, give us a good review. Make sure to keep keep hearing. And if you want to keep, if, if you want to talk to us, you know, if you follow us on Twitter or engage with us on our Instagram, that's one place. But if you want to be part of our community in terms of talking with other fans and us and us as well in terms of discussing this stuff and ongoing issues, because you know the world is always doing things, <laughs> be sure to join our Discord. And if you're if you're a pat- patron, you're able to you you have access to our Discord in addition to extra content and supporting the show. But also we have a Lower, low, our lowest tier. It's only three dollars. You know, cheaper than a cup of coffee nowadays. Mm-hmm. You have, ac- you can just have access to just the Discord server, so you can just, you know, chat away. And if you thought 
oh, I want to keep hearing about theory. I want you know, I'm gonna be a real theory head, or I really want to go off and talk about more about history, and I want to hear more from you know from Jamie, from Aaron, from Jorge, or from other people. Be sure to go to Discord, and also other f- fans, also other friends of the show, people who have come onto the onto the program are also on the Discord. Be sure to to check us out. We got Marvin Gonzalez, folks. Get him while he's hot. <laughs> Get him while he's hot. <laughs> Absolutely. And but more people will be joining. Don't worry. But now that we get got that out of the way, make sure to tune in. Now, part two on this on the series is focusing on Alexandra Kollontai's text titled "Communism and the Family," and this mm. was published. I'm listening. In, <laughs> do tell us more. And this was published in 1920, and. You know, like Aaron, I have not I had not read as much about Kalantai as, as much as I'd wished. You know, but, you know, both of us are men. We're here. We're listening to women. We're here. We're here. <laughs> Sitting our asses down listening. Yeah, we're here. We're here <laughs> observing, uh, taking it in, making sure we're we're getting the lessons. Um, but this essay in particular, I found quite compelling. I found it. Um, you know, I don't want to give away all of it, but it's it had an effect on me in a very positive way. It revealed to me the uh, real break from orthodox Marxism that was exemplified by people like Marx, by Engels, by Lenin, even people like, say, uh, you know, which is true, people like Kotsky or Bernstein, like these, these people had like a certain image of the way of analyzing society by focusing, which, you know, is important, focusing on the form of production that exists in the economy from like the worker-owner relationship. But this uh, this essay really shows like there's just so much more that there is to be analyzing that the way the way that Kalantai writes about this just reveals the deficiencies in just that orthodox Marxist reading. Yeah, can I can I add too? I think that um that's a really good point, Jorge too. And I think that when you think about things like the family, you know. Um, and you know, communism, it's like Marx, like, you know, I guess he, he had things to say, but a lot of like Marx's work didn't really dive in. It's people that picked up on his writing that really dived into these sort of nuances about the social reality about, you know, um, the mode of production that we're under. So, um, I think this one too, like, you know, it sounds common, like it's common sense, but I've never really thought about the family not much before I'd read this piece or a lot of um, a lot of, I guess, um, different things she talks about in this collection of pieces. So I kind of think it's important for people to like get a foundational understanding of concepts that Marx didn't really elaborate on too much. You know, to be fair on the flip side, I think we're showing a little bit of our male privilege here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is why people should read this piece. Uh, everyone should, you know, uh, male mask individuals included. That's right. Because guess what? Everyone came from somewhere. Everyone <laughs> was a baby once. Uh, not, not everyone is not, necessarily going to have children. Not me, not me Jamie. No, I, I, would, I, came out, I came out exactly <laughs> okay. like this. I was born. I woke up like this baby. Everyone but Aaron and Jorge <laughs> were babies once. And uh, those babies have to come from somewhere. And someone has to take care of them. So if only for that. Uh, and, you know, plus we want to have a, a, a good society where everybody's happy and thriving. So, you know, this is definitely important for people of all genders to think about. Absolutely. Yeah, I came out fully as an adult, sprung from my father's headache, just like Athena. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, kidding aside, okay. So there's three sections to this essay. Um, this first section, really direct, knows what 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 they're going to be talking about. Is titled 
women's role in production, its effect upon the family. When and if you don't know production, what we mean by production, we're meaning about like the producing of commodities of objects and things that are either to be sold or to be used in the economy. That's what typically those of us who are Marxists mean by production. So and the production of value too, right? Because right. some things aren't like physical objects necessarily. Like, oh, hey, you make software. That's not a physical object, but it's still creating value for the company. Mm. Right, right. And, and just like in society more broadly. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so here she offers, she is making an economic argument true at the, at the end of the day, which is seems obvious, but had not really been explored too much. So Kalantai begins this essay by asking, quote, will the family continue to exist under communism? Will the family remain in the same form? You know, she goes right to the, you know, the, the point of like the, the, the thrust of the essay. She proclaims that Quote, life is changing before our very eyes. Now, you know, before we get into the rest of it, 1920, this is after the October Revolution, the Soviet Revolution in Russia. At this point, they're in the middle of the Civil War, but it seems apparent that the Bolsheviks and the Russian Communist Party will win the war. Um, of course, not guaranteed, but it seems it seemed to be that case. Now, the Soviet Union had not yet formed. It, the Soviet Union was formed in 1922. So this is just Soviet Russia. Um, but that's why she's asking these questions because people, you know, who are not Bolsheviks, who are not even like the cadre of the Bolsheviks, they're wondering, you know, who are these people that are now in charge of my life? Who are what, they're saying things that you know I might somewhat agree with some, but some things kind of worry me. Like they're saying things about things that are changing in terms of you know women and family and children. It's like I I'm worried about these things. So that's part. It's an important aspect as to why. She wrote this essay, which I think is a very fair point as to why to, to kind of address that. But, yeah, you know, I digress. But providing context. So basically, she's answering a question that exists in the world. She's yeah. not just pointlessly right. theorizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's like when she's saying, oh, well, it continues under communism. It's not. Yeah, she's not like saying like us who are in America saying about, oh, communism. When she's writing, she's like, no, I'm writing from it from the position of I am in the Communist Party of Russia, which is essentially the de facto power in Russia. Mm. Like, it's that's a real, like, okay, you know, now we're in charge. People will be asking, how does it affect me? How does your ideology affect me directly in terms of just my family? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. like Jamie said, it's no longer theoretical. She's actually, like, talking about this trans transitional phase and, like, how do we start to think about these things differently now, these social relations, right? Right. So... Going back to the text and what, I've, I've, what, I've, what I have written here, she proclaimed that, quote, life is changing before our very eyes. Old habits and customs are dying out, and the whole life of the proletarian family is developing in a way that is new and unfamiliar and, in the, in the eyes of some, bizarre, end quote. An example she mentions of how life is so profoundly changing is how divorce had been made easier in Soviet Russia and is, quote, no longer a luxury that only the rich can afford, end quote. You know, I think that's pretty good. Many women who are unhappy in their marriage welcome this change. But Kalantai is keen to point out how women, quote, who are used to looking upon their husband as breadwinners are frightened. They have not yet understood 
that a woman must accustom herself to seek and find support in the collective and in society and not from the individual man, end quote. I think Mm. this is really interesting because it does address to something that, um, you know, whether we've talked about on this podcast or, you know, uh, we have talked about individually on our own, off the podcast or just in our daily lives with other with other socialists and communists. It's this idea that, you know, not everyone's going to be on board with this, with these ideas, but that's always the case with any political movement. Um, mm-hmm. The rather, rather it's a whether or not you're able to convince people and have to accept that their attitudes and behaviors will change to accept this uh, new vision of society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often like to think of it as like the shift in social consciousness, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not just so much like a shift in the mode or change in the mode of production, but also like, obviously like the way people think about themselves and think about others in their community. So like a lot of that stuff doesn't like just come just because, you know, um, you know, uh, the workers own the means of production, right? right? Or we own run society, society collectively. Like those things aren't just a given and shouldn't be taken for granted, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So um, she then moved on to plainly state what she views as true regarding the traditional family and how it was shifting under Soviet Russia. What follows is, I think, really fascinating um, use of material analysis about describing um, how the family has changed throughout history, at least in that part of Europe, but also in terms of what she's aware of in other parts of the world. So, quote, the old family in which the man was everything and the woman nothing. The typical family where the woman had no will of her own, no time for her own, and no money of her own, is changing before our very eyes, end quote. She said there is no reason to be alarmed and that, quote, it is only our ignorance that leads us to think that the things we are used to can never change, end quote, which is, you know, totally true. In fact, she proclaimed that we, as historical materialists, should know that, quote, the structure of the family has changed many times, end quote, and goes on to list various forms the family had taken shape. There was once the kinship family, where, quote, the mother headed a family consisting of her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, all who lived and worked together, quote, end quote. There has also been the patriarchal family, where the father's will was the, quote, the law for all other members of the family, end quote. And an example she provides that existed in that time still was the peasantry in Russian villages, that this very much was the way that... Uh, family was structured. And it's important to mention that people talk about patriarchy. They, they typically mean on a societal level, but the patriarchal family is a very specific um, manifestation of how families are oriented. Mm-hmm. Many people don't really, especially in the West, don't really grow up in that kind of family because it's, it's so regimented and so obviously oppressive. Um, mm. Like even, even if you had a father that was particularly like matcha or like even mm. lean that way. I, it's unlikely that it was truly in that like traditional manifestation of that form, unless mm. it was like a very deeply religious conservative family. Well, wives are not their husband's property anymore, but uh, it did take a while for right. that to fully go away. Like, uh, it wasn't that long ago when uh, women in this country needed their husband's permission in order to get birth control. Wild. Or even, like, I think in the, um, anybody let me know if I'm wrong, but I think in the 70s, up until the 70s, women couldn't, like, own a, their own bank account or something like that, right? right. Mm-hmm. Like, in the United 100%. States, at least, right? 
in a country which, you know, under um, this bourgeois democracy has afforded them the right to vote, which even that right, took way well, much longer than, uh, than um, anybody expected, right? 100%. And it, of course, I'm not saying it was like so, so long ago, but what, mm-hmm. I, what I'm describing more is that it's, uh, it's important when, when it's important to distinguish why Kalantai is using that phrasing specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sure. To, to distinguish from other forms of the family. Yeah. Um, so there have been forms of the family where the man is allowed to have several wives, where the woman has, and also there are those that have, where the woman has several husbands. There have been expectations regarding a young girl remaining a virgin until marriage, and there have been those where there's been expectation where, quote, it is a matter of pride to have had many lovers and where the women decorate their arms and legs with the corresponding number of bracelets, end quote. Hell yeah, let's bring that one back. Hell yeah, get it, ladies. <laughs> Kalantai says we might view such practices as immoral, but those people, quote, might consider our laws and customs sinful, end quote. Therefore, the form of the family shifting and changing is no reason for alarm because, you know, this has happened always. And instead, quote, our job is to decide which aspects of our family system are outdated and to determine what relations between the men and women of the working and peasant classes and which rights and duties would best harmonize with the conditions of life in the new workers' Russia, end quote. Mm. Kalant- Tell us. Yeah, so Kalantai moves her attention to discuss the form of the family of the urban and rural proletariat, you know, as a, as a, as a Marxist in the Leninist fashion, uh, who's in the Bolshevik party, that's very much, that's what is argued. That's like, oh, we care about is the urban r- r- urban and somewhat sometimes rural proletariat. So she points out how if it were not for, quote, the isolated, firmly knit family based on a church wedding, who would have fed, clothed, and brought up the children? Who would have given them advice? Now, this seems like a very pe- pe- peculiar question, but... She's more asking this from the point of view of society writ large. Like, if you, if you just remove yourself from what we know about our current society or the society you grew up in, you have to think, all right, well, say you just have men, women, you know, people in the world, you know, it doesn't matter what gender, and then, there's fam- and then they have families, and then people who are children. Like, basically, you consider humans as a biological species that they are. How is it that you ensure that the process that humanity is involved in, the biological process of humanity, such that it is able to continually reproduce and develop itself, basically feeding, clothing, and bringing up the next generation, and then con- and then have that process continue, how does that come about? Without, and then she basically said, well, for much of human history, it, was be- it is because of this, like, uh, or at least in terms of uh, what, she was gra- what she was aware of in terms of Russia, it's like, without the family as it existed, that would not have happened given mm-hmm. the way society was structured. That's right. Side note, though, that is not how humans reproduce for all of our history. In not fact, sure. it, the nuclear family really only goes back to the beginning of class society, mm-hmm. private property. In hunter-gatherer times, for like thousands of years, people raised their children in a much more communal way. Mm-hmm. The more you That's know. Right. That's right. Maybe yeah. we'll have an episode on Sex at Dawn one of these times, and we'll talk to Christopher Ryan Who knows? about uh, about all that. Mm. Stay tuned, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, you know, to the point that Jamie brings up, 
that's absolutely correct in a sense that there is no like like the form of the family. It is very much societally structured. Um, and that actually, given what Jane points out, should actually make us view it positively in a sense that, oh, well, you know, the way a lot of people grow up in their families can seems very flawed, but that doesn't mean that's like, that's just how it's always going to have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it appears she's pointing out how, when was what his question is she's asking, how such an arrangement had a socially necessary purpose given children will be raised. Quote, husbands earns and support his wife and children. And thirdly, quote, wife for her part is occupied with housekeeping and with bringing up the children as best as she can. So she, she's saying that like this, you know, flawed as it may have been, this traditional form of the family, the way that it was uh, like, you know, the nuclear family manifested by the urban and rural proletariat, for all its flaws, at the very least, had f- fulfilled many societal purposes. You know, mm-hmm. kids were brought up. Um, you know, the the father or the husband would make money and then support the rest of the family, and then the wife would be in charge of the domestic life. You know, you know, for all its flaws and uneven labor and all everything associated with that and and uh, or social oppressions, it did have a societal purpose. Mm-hmm. However. However, she says that this, the customary family structure, quote, and this is a really, really wonderful, like, next thing which she's going to go into, because it blew my mind, Mm. has been falling apart in all the countries where capitalism is dominant and where the number of factories and other enterprises which employ hired labor is increasing, end quote. She states how, quote, the universal spread of female labor has contributed most of all to the radical change in family life. End quote. So through the process of developing into a more capitalist society, the very mechanic, me- me- mechanics of capitalism necessitate women to, quote, look for a wage and to knock at the family door. Quote, a factory the, door. Factory door. That's true. Yeah. Factory door. Since the wages of the breadwinner are insufficient for the needs of the family. So, mm. you know, for all this talk that all these like you might you hear nowadays, but also has always been like a like a like a dog whistle sort by conservatives and reactionaries that oh socialists communists you know or even liberals want to destroy the family. What Colin Ty is pointing out, and this is from a hundred years ago, that truly at the heart of what the, the nuclear family is already being destroyed by capitalism mm-hmm. because capitalism necessitates more and more. People enter into the wage, wage, wage uh, the workforce to increase the amount of pr- productive capacity. Mm. That's right. I think this is a very good point because, uh, yeah, as you said, people are sometimes scared. Socialism, oh, it's going to take things away from us. You're trying to destroy the family. Uh, she's showing the family has been destroyed and socialists are trying to actually replace it with something new that uh, right. serves human needs much better. And this is this is a theme that keeps coming back and back again um, whenever we talk about a lot of this stuff, right? Like um, all the old structures are falling, right. patriarchy, church, these things that did serve a social purpose and created social cohesion. Um, and the of course, the reactionary answer to that is, oh, we need to bring those things back. And the socialist answer to that is, no, we need to build new ways of living, relating, and, uh, you know, getting along, cohering as a society that are truly liberatory and not oppressive. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I try to think of it the same way in which 
like socialism, communism would change the individual, right? So why wouldn't it change also also the family, right? Like people think that um, under socialism or communism, the individual will be like erased completely, right? But I think actually you get to live up to your true potential as a human being under a system in which you are not a wage slave, right? Same thing with the family, right? Um, Especially when, yeah, conservatives, like Jamie said, conservatives love to talk about how it destroys the family. I'm like, well, doesn't like capitalism already pit you know, family members against each other, spouses against one another, you know, and this kind of dry grind for competition and like, you know, um, surplus value. So I don't know. I think, uh, I think, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for all its flaws, um, mm-hmm. like, and you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go and in, go into his large, uh, criticism of the Soviet union. I think overall with the net good, I'm on the record for that now, but <laughs> yes, point being, point being, uh, I think if you look at say employment in just like, which, you know, I care about, I, when I focus a lot and reveals to me a lot about a society, it's like, um, it, how serious it takes science and develop and research. Um, mm. because that's not, sometimes it does have, has to do with like economic interest in terms of capitalism, but sometimes it doesn't. And so it just rather, it's like, is there, it's just like a general interest from a societal point of view, a buy-in mm-hmm. from, from society to do that. And you look at scientists in the Soviet Union there was a pretty good gender equity, like mm. it, it, like for the now a lot of like the top leaders in science in the Soviet Union were, were men, but that mm. was true for many places. That this is not an excuse, but mm. if you look at like there were so many women scientists in the Soviet Union, and that is very and you know if you look at the United States, the women scientists were just outcasts for the most yeah. part, or or just like they would develop things. You know, you could look at um, up with DNA, Rosalind Franklin, she was the one that discovered the structure of DNA. And, mm. you know, the people uh, who, who most people associate with finding DNA just appropriated her work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. Yeah. So, A lot of girl bosses in the Soviet Union is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I mean, I mean we're, we're listen to the OG here. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, basically, yeah, if you have a different family structure which actually allows women to be more than like mothers and wives and property, then yeah, maybe you can get cool shit like women scientists too, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. And also note, I can hear people saying right now, but what about social democracy, right? Because that can provide a lot of the same supports for uh, women, families, parenthood, et cetera, that she's talking about here. However, I mean, they do. As we saw with the transition from uh, the golden age of capitalism, shall we say, the post-war period to the 1970s in the U.S., where we had, you know, the closest thing to social democracy that we're ever going to have, probably, uh, transitioning into neoliberalism, a transition which was largely overdetermined by the machinations of the global capitalist market, um, these things under social democracy, uh, they're only ever going to be temporary, and mm-hmm. it's only going to be when the market allows. Um, by contrast, the kind of transitional state that she's talking about in the Soviet Union might look a lot like social democracy, but it is at least ostensibly trying to build toward a, a great overcoming of the logic of capitalism right. and a transition into a world beyond it. Mm. So in that sense, I think it's very different, even though it might look the same on its face. Yeah, or initially, too, because 
you know, if you look at, say, the Soviet Union or other actually existing socialist states, we're still, we're, we're still observing them in, like, one, this, like, siege defensive attitude and not able to develop, but then also early on in this development. Like, there are a lot of things that yeah. need to be resolved. But mm. that's a huge digression. But um, to go back to the text, um, Colin Tice says capitalism has broken down the family, as we were saying, as it has, quote, placed a crushing burden on women's shoulders. It has made her a wage worker without having reduced her cares as a housekeeper or mother. Life has never been easy for a woman, but never has her lot been harder and more desperate than that of the millions of working women under the capitalist yoke in this heyday of factory production, end quote. She then asks, how can one talk about family life when the man and woman work different springs and where the wife does not even have the time to prepare a decent meal for her offspring? How can one talk of parents when the mother and father are out working all day and cannot find the time to spend even a few minutes with their children, end quote. For so much talk, and we mentioned this before, about how socials want to destroy the family, it is apparent capitalism is doing it this all on, on its own. And I think something here, what you know, she just asked, I think is you know, really a profound, quite frankly, talking point that those of us who are socialists in the West don't really use as much as we should in terms of, you know, we think about uh, conservatives and reactionaries like those that are Occupy, either are in it or to, you know, to the, even to the right of the Republican Party. They talk about family values. I think just an easy rebuttal is just like, well, you care about family values, yet, old, you know, why is it that no no families can, like, live, uh, can actually, like, support themselves and, you know, because they're working so much or can't even support their own children. It's like, yeah. like, like, that's not, yeah. those are not family values. Now, it seems, you now, those who are listening who are not, you know, who are, like, you know, really opposed this kind of electoral, it's like, oh, Jorge, or why are you talking about this electoral nonsense? But the fact of the matter is, this is such a profoundly, like, uh, so in-depth and so pervading our society in America about talking about you know no one even like the idea that they're oh yeah no one really pushes back on this idea or really in a, in a large sense push back on the idea that the republican party care about families ostensibly mm-hmm. but really they don't yeah yeah, yeah i've heard I'm, that quite a bit in recent weeks actually right uh, from even from from you know progressive liberals or whoever saying just pointing out the essential hypocrisy between uh oh yeah forcing women to have babies that they don't want but refusing to provide for them once they're born however right. however uh we deserve the right to an abortion whether or not there is a welfare right. state, so all you Liz Brunet Christian Democrat types can fuck off too. Yeah, exactly, the, the, the exactly. other thing too, yeah, like, and I mean another thing too, it's like, yeah, that's such a good point. the The conservatives love to talk about family values, right? But whenever, whenever it comes to actually supporting the family materially, like that argument is completely absent, you know. So yeah, the left right. should kind of seize on that ground, you know. Yeah, yeah I like I like family abolition discourse. I've dug into it quite a bit, but I really think it needs to be called like family expansion or <laughs> something like that, because it really is only abolishing it in the it, it's really more about overcoming it in the Hegelian sense. Right. right? It's not about taking away things that. Uh, well, you know what? 
No, scratch that. It is about taking away some things. Like you don't get to be a trad cath in the future. Sorry, uh, <laughs> but it, it's it's more about expanding and adding things that are going to expand the circle of love and care beyond just whoever you were, you know, lucky enough or unlucky enough to have been born to to encompass all of society. Right, and I think you know, and what we're, what what this this thing I brought up. What I'm saying is like, you know, what you just said, Jamie, is totally right. But it's even beyond that. Like, you know, we're not talking about, oh, there should be like these nice like benefits. No, no, that's the minimum of a functioning society that cares about its people. That's not yeah. we're not arguing that we're talking beyond like saying if even if that existed, we're saying, no, there should also be this aspect of people like I could imagine a social democracy where women and men or anyone who is in the family are still working, but not making the time for, to see their children. Right. Mm. Like mm -hmm. that, but there are like some ostensible, some bare minimum benefits of available. We're talking about beyond that. We're talking about having like a totally inclusive aspect of all families, no matter what. And, uh, you know, capitalism is just not capable, not capable or, of providing that even in a social democratic sense. Yeah, well, absolutely. or it is sometimes, but it is totally contingent on what the rate of profit is doing, which is not really uh, something that I want to count on. How about you? Line goes down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I certainly don't. I, I certainly and I certainly don't even uh, think that that's something you can count on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But well, let us continue. Right, and you know, and she'll go into it in the next section. But she lays out some. Things that they were able to do very soon after the, the revolution. And I'm like, this is just so profoundly beyond like what one the United States has. But then mm -hmm. even like I think like many, you know, social dem democracy, which you know, have a range in Europe. You have France yeah. and Germany, but then you also have the, the, you know, the exalted social democracy people point to like the Scandinavian countries. Mm -hmm. But like I'm like, damn, like some of those countries don't even have that. We'll get it to it, though. Mm -hmm. um, but the married woman, she says here, the married working woman must therefore, sorry, the married working woman, the way that uh, is in capitalist Russia, must work both at the factory as well as her domestic tasks. Kalantai says, quote, it is not surprising, therefore, that family ties should loosen and the family begin to fall apart. The circumstances that held the family together no longer exist. She means this like in a material way. Mm -hmm. The family is ceasing to be necessary either to its members or to the nation as a whole. Now, she's not saying like, oh, we should, oh, and we don't care about it. No, it's saying re in reality, that form of society, social structure is not having value anymore, given how everything else is occurring. But we'll see. There's still left, there's still some rest of this. The old family structure is now merely a hindrance. What used to make the old family so strong? She says three things. First, because the husband and father was the family's breadwinner. Secondly, because the family economy was necessary to all its members. And thirdly, because children were brought up by their parents. What is left of this former type of family? The husband, as we have just seen, has ceased to be the sole breadwinner. The wife who goes to work earns wages. She has learned to earn her living to support her children and not infrequently her husband. End quote. So she ends this section by stating how she views the role of the family in capitalist society and right after the, Rus the revolution in Soviet Russia. The family, this is a quote, 
The family now only served as the primary economic unit of society and a supporter and educator of young women, I mean, of young children. Let us examine the matter in more detail to see whether or not the family is about to relieve of these tasks as well, end quote. So like the next two sections is about these two. So she said these three things. Father slash husband brings in the money. Two, family economy necessary for all its members. She'll get into why, what she means by that. And three, the children are raised by the parents. So she says the first one, as we saw in this section, that's not really true anymore. And that's true about our society as well. Like, you know, women are just as involved in the workforce as men are on average. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a little bit less sometimes, but on overall, it's not really a huge difference. So the other two things has to do with like, what is this family economy? What's going on internal to the family? And like what what it's reproducing that's ne- it's necessary for those that are in the family, and the other one is about children being brought up. So, at the end of this section, um, so we go into the next section, um, which you know has a, for all for all of you people who have uh, had to continually maintain uh, uh, you know domestic tasks and uh, chores. It's a wonderful title, very appealing. And the title of the section is called. Housework ceases to be necessary. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. No more chores. <laughs> so, um, so and it's about the second point about what she means by the family economy. So in this section, Colin Ty begins by describing to us and reminding us how the life of working women was in pre-capitalist Russia in the traditional family structure that we were just talking about. Quote, there was a time when the women of the poorer classes in city and country spent their entire lives within the four walls of the home. A woman knew nothing beyond the threshold of her home and in most cases had no wish to know anything. After all, in her own home, there was so much to do and this work was most necessary and useful not only for the family itself, but also for the state as a whole, end quote. So in addition to their domestic labor, women would also manufacture and produce things the family needed to survive. Examples include spun wool and linen, would weave cloth and garments, would prepare pickles for winter, and would manufacture Ooh. her own candles. You know, would do a lot of uh, things that would be traditionally considered, you know, art- artisanal labor, productive labor um, mm-hmm. in a traditional sense. So the modern woman, the modern women of industrial Russia need not think about any of this. In the day of her grandmother, quote, all this domestic work was necessary and beneficial. It ensured the well-being of the family, end quote. This work needed to happen. Like, it needed to happen. In fact, this work benefited the entire economy as, quote, the more work the woman and the other members of the family put into making cloth, leather, and wool, the surplus of which was sold in the neighboring market, the greater the economic prosperity of the country as a whole, end quote. You know, there's something to that. You know, it's like you, because this work was not really being done elsewhere, this this absolutely needed to happen, and I'm sure also helped bring in money for the family. Mm-hmm. And we're also looking at the transition from, I guess, a pre-capitalist economy to a capitalist economy, right? right? Because you see a little bit of trading on the side, mm-hmm. but most goods are produced for the people by and for the people who are going to be using them, right? Most things mm-hmm. are not produced for sale on the marketplace. Yeah, for exchange value, for their use value, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, and I think an important part is like the market in many societies before capitalism had existed. That is not the predominant reason. What, but 
characterized as capitalism. What mm-hmm. characterizes the cap and you know, like market and money, you know, we know all these things existed before, but like you were mm-hmm. saying, like you said, that's why, like you said, like they were like exchanging things. Mm-hmm. What makes capitalism distinct is arranging all of society for the purpose of selling things on the market. Yeah, mm-hmm. and also to extract surplus value, right? Right. From from the working class, right? Right, right, right. That yeah. is what is distinct about capitalism from, say, feudalism or other traditional forms of family, uh, forms of, not family, of, of society, mm-hmm. whether it's like, you know, slave societies or like, you know, other tribal societies that uh, it, it's that don't really fit into like this model of like say feudalism or capitalism or mercantilism, but are very much a something that existed for a long period of time before the manifestation of a, uh, you know, more surplus, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe we'll do uh, a little bit of history on that when we tackle, are we going to do capital? Ooh. Oh shit. <laughs> one, one, I feel like should. we have to. You probably one, should. We have to. One day we will. At some point. At some point. Stay tuned. And if you support the show, it can happen. Um, <laughs> so, Capitalism changed all of this. Everything that just described was, quote, formerly produced in the bosom of the family is now being manufactured on a mass scale in workshops and factories. So why bother making these things when you can simply purchase these products at the store? You know, you could do them on your own, but I mean, that's more of a hobby. And that's like, hobbyism mm-hmm. for the most part is an outgrowth of, you know, like, you need to be in Mets, mm-hmm. quite frankly. And there are also lots of capitalists competing to uh, sell you these things at a low price that probably seems like a good deal compared to uh, the number of hours you had to put in before in order to actually make these things versus the number of hours you have to put in now to make the amount of money that you need to buy them. Yeah, totally. And so, quote, what was formerly produced in the family is now produced by the collective labor of working men and women in the factories, end quote. So, thus, Kolontai says, quote, the family no longer produces, it only consumes. And yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. Um, like like new, newfound, I guess, relation, social relation to the means of production, at least, right? That um, that she points out that's new under capitalism. The consumption aspect, right? Yeah. Yeah. And but I th- also, we see how uh, pr- capitalism is on some level progressive, right? Because yep. uh, it is more efficient to mass produce things that people need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's not suggesting that we go back to a situation where everybody has to make their own fucking candles, right? <laughs> right. She's saying, uh, I mean, spoiler alert, but capitalism has sort of laid the groundwork for us to evolve to an even better and more efficient way of producing and distributing things right. called communism. Exactly. And I mean, I've probably said this before. We've talked about it. Probably said this exact same thing before, but like capitalism, um, you know, as much as individuality and individualism is lauded, I mean, it is like a collective mode of production in the sense that like all of this is like collectively done. Right. But it's just about how society is then organized and what values. Right. Mm-hmm. Or I guess prioritized. Right. So like Jamie said, like these uh, these tools and mechanisms are kind of already embedded within the system itself. Right. Right. Absolutely. And um, actually, never mind. Um, continue with the text. So mm-hmm. the only housework left consists of cleaning, cooking, washing, and the care of linen and clothing of the family. So she named these four categories of housework, which, quite frankly, that kind of nails it. Yeah, I um, think so. Yeah, cleaning, uh, cooking, washing, care of linen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, bas- mm-hmm. basically just like, you know, just upkeep, make mm-hmm. sure everything's clean. Not being a goblin, yeah. Yeah, 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 making, yeah <laughs> not, not going into goblin mode, uh, cooking <laughs> and then washing stuff. That's, yeah, that pretty much 
for the most part, account for it in terms of just in the household. Um, actually, I just remembered the point from before. I'll just say it now. Um, I find the what you're talking about before about like, oh, no one wants to be doing like creating their own candles anymore, Jamie. I think so. I'd argue that there is a trend a little bit, not really a huge one, but I've noticed it, particularly online circles that I've seen it, but it's more than just like niche. It's definitely like have grown to be, especially among, you know, younger people um, mm. uh, on like Gen Z types where they kind of, there's this thing called cottage core and mm. <laughs> where there's like this, like, I want to say, fe- I don't want to say fetishization, but definitely. Is it like a reclamation? I guess a little bit. I feel like it's a reaction to the horrors of modernity. Well, like like the reactionaries that I mentioned earlier, whose reaction to all of these things being broken down is like, we need to go backwards. We need to be tried. That's the only way to fix it. Whereas the socialist reaction is, oh, we need to take the good things from capitalism and leave behind the bad things and keep on moving forward. But but Mm. but the point I wanted to get at is, I think so. I think that's informed true but i think the impetus of that and like i've, I've observed some of these people because i'm curious there is an aspect of like you know reactionary traditionalism involved but it's not the way that it typically comes about of like oh we just need to have like this rigid structure mm-hmm. because what they're arguing is like, oh we need to go out into the land that's not really like like that's like more of an individualist kind of perspective right mm-hmm. but Part of it has to do, and it's kind of ties to what Colin is saying right now, is that there's like a loss of of feeling like you know, you know, you're alienated from any value you have. So, yeah. and whereas like they're like they're like they're like latching on to say the f- traditional family as a way to gain value, but because it seems of living it, off the land is also yeah. an important aspect mm-hmm. of like Ed, reclaiming yeah. like their value and labor. Exactly. Ed, it seems like go ahead, Jamie. Oh, and, and just like being de-alienated from the things they create, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, it seems, because it seems like this very idyllic, kind of cozy, like cottage core is the perfect name for it. Because when you think of a cottage, you think of this idyllic countryside, right? Right. Like this kind of reclamation of values, but that aren't in form inherently reactionary until you start to kind of peel back the layers and dig right. a little deeper. But the impetus is like this sort of like, um, I mean, this sort of, I don't know, this reclamation of this homeliness, you know, right. and kind of being connected, I guess, to the land and I guess like a larger community, except it's anything yeah, but having that a really. community. Yeah, well, enjoy spending your days uh, churning butter and dying in <laughs> childbirth, ladies. I think I'll take what's behind the mystery door. I'll take well, luxury, uh, automated luxury gay space communism. That's what I'll take. Um, I'll take but, Star Trek communism over that cottage core shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I, I I will say I do think that there is like we do need this is why I was said said the things about the family values thing earlier because I think that because there is not this like positive vision of family or what that would look like from 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 what we're arguing from under socialist point of view, there that people do want community even in the most intimate way, mm-hmm. um, in the most intimate scope they want community and they're latching onto like this like you said Aaron like idyllic. Mm-hmm. A vision of the countryside, which I think is concerning because, like, you know, that's very much extremely consistent throughout fascism, like movements of fascism. Mm-hmm. I mean, so even like, in the I mean, even in the American history, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, like the the yeoman, the yeoman farmer, 
right? Like the idea that like you'd have all these individual farmers, not nothing like um, like feudalism at all, but these individual farmers who could have their own self-sufficient, self-reliant plot of land. Like even that shit is inherently when you really look at it, it's like, oh, but which men? You know, men only and right. which men, right? right. Well, only white men to be sure, right? Right. And then like land that wasn't theirs. Yeah, exactly. That was, wasn't theirs and being cultivated by slaves. Exactly. But to go back, you know, I just, I just remember that point. To go mm. back regarding the housework. And, you know, she's mentioned these four categories. Cleaning, cooking, washing, and care of learning, clothing, a family. She says, while all of these tasks are important to keep the family together, Collins is eager to point out how these tasks, quote, are of no value to the state and the national economy. For they do not create any new values or make any contributions to the prosperity of the country. Despite her industry, the housewife would not have made anything that could be considered a commodity, end quote. That's really a strong uh, analysis in my point of view because, like, it's true. You, 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 there is no product that comes from those four things. Like, these are necessary mm-hmm. from, from, like, the maintaining of social reproduction, of reproducing the labor of a worker. But, like, you need to do that to make sure you're able... Like, you could not do any of that, but let's be realistic. You're not, like, you're not really going to have a healthy lifestyle. Um, yeah. but they're, yeah, they're not commodities as such, but I do think that, um, social reproduction theory has made some advancements since this era right. on the sort of Marxist analysis of work done in the home. Um, I, I think there really is a case to be made that the work done outside of the official workplace, which is what we call social reproductive labor or social reproduction, it serves a very important purpose in capitalism, right? It keeps the working class alive from day to day and generation to generation so that there are workers to work for the capitalists. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's a little more helpful to think of productive and reproductive labor as part of a single closed system uh, and, you know, there have been times when capitalism is functioning well and makes room to allow for this fact, whether it's forced to by unions or the bosses just realize it's in their own interests. And there have been eras when it doesn't do that so much. Mm. But um, maybe maybe uh, maybe Kolontai actually does account for that somewhere. But I, yeah. I like to think of it that way. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think from her correctly, uh, um, the typical social reproduction answer to that is no it is producing a commodity that commodity is labor power that's right Mm. human labor power the only commodity that can generate surplus value wait can i can i also kind of point something out maybe ask a question maybe i'm look maybe i'm um, reading this wrong but like when she says that the that these tasks are not commodified um i mean I'm just thinking about like the gig economy and like, you know, like care.com. I mean, forget like nannying and things like that already. But I mean, you know, now with the gig economy, you have so, so like apps and services where you can have a nanny for a day or you can have a house cleaner for a day. You can have, so, you know what I mean? And like this incredibly, again, with the gig economy feels incredibly exploitative, even more so than already was. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll, well get it. Well, she, t- she accounts for this actually. Well, mm-hmm. we'll get into it. Like, yes, you, you, someone would like, you're Aaron saying Colin Todd did not account for the gig economy. <laughs> Actually, she did in this essay. We'll go okay, nice, it. sweet. Um, that's the power of, of the immortal science. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so, um, let me see where I am. Give me a second. The conclusion. Okay, yeah. The conclusion Colin Todd arrives at is, quote, women's work is becoming less useful to the community as a whole. The individual household is dying. It is giving way in our society to collective housekeeping. Hmm. Instead of the working women 
cleaning her flat, the common society can arrange for men and women whose job it is to go around in the morning cleaning rooms. Hmm. The wives of the rich have long since been freed from these irritating and tiring domestic duties. Instead of the working woman having to struggle with the cooking and spend her last three hours in the kitchen preparing dinner and supper, common society will organize public restaurants and communal kitchens. So in just one paragraph, she account she like by talking about like how we can organize domestic labor differently, not only is she mentioning that, oh, well, kind of what you're saying, Aaron, because like the gig economy, really what it is, is like the expansion and marketization of servants, right? Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> exactly. And, 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 but, but what yeah. she's... But and, she's a, and a reaction to this, uh, this double bind that women are still in, right? right. Where they uh, got to work outside the home and make money, but they're still expected to do all these domestic tasks. Um, women with enough money, or at least like enough of a delta between the amount of money that they have and the amount of money that underemployed people have uh, are able to solve this problem by, uh, you know, paying other people to do their domestic labor for them. But obviously uh, that system is bound to collapse at some point when all of the underemployed serfs uh, can no longer reproduce themselves as a class. Hi, everybody. Paul Channelstrip here. This is just a short intermission to hide the fact that there was an unfortunate break in the recording. So uh, while I've got your attention, go ahead and head over to fans.fm slash everybody loves communism. Give us five dollars. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening to the show. The conclusion Kalantai arrives at is, quote, women's work is becoming less useful to the community as a whole. The individual household is dying. It is giving way in our society to collective housekeeping. Instead of the working woman cleaning her flat, the common society can arrange for men and women whose job it is to go around in the morning cleaning rooms. The wives of the rich have long since been freed from these irritating and tiring domestic duties. Instead of the working woman having to struggle with the cooking and spend her last three hours in the kitchen preparing dinner and supper, common society will organize public restaurants and communal kitchens. So, like, not just, like, um, in this one paragraph, Kalantai not just only discusses about what you were saying earlier, Aaron, Mm. about, like, the gig economy. Because, as we know, the gig economy is just, like, the expansion of the servant uh, class, but also goes into discourse regarding, you know, restaurant abolition mm-hmm. and way before anyone talked about it on say a website called twitter.com <laughs> yeah they barely even had restaurants at this point in time mm-hmm. but that's just the power of you know historical materialism mm-hmm. it's true seeing true. seeing into the future they had like i i actually don't know re- really what they had in terms of uh restaurants at that time do you guys no i'm not sure. they definitely had restaurants they for sure had restaurants um in fact, like I remember a talking point that uh, people still use, conservatives use, but definitely was like a thing back then about Lenin, how, well, he's someone that's really about the working class, but I mean, he's like a lawyer that that, that frequents like, you know, cafes in Vienna and Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and it's like, yo, he's like me for real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well, I wouldn't be, uh, you know, I'm thinking about it, Jamie, I, y'all, I wouldn't be surprised if restaurants became more of um um like not only created but more popular and popularized with the advent of the industrial revolution you know like mm-hmm. as a kind of way to like you know feed quickly feed masses of people you know workers i guess so but i don't know i don't quote me on that because i may be wrong but i would not be well, surprised I, ac- 
I actually know a little bit about this from reading the famous text by Prol.info, Abolish Restaurants. Mm. I don't know how famous it is, but it's it's famous to me. Mm. Uh, and it kind of goes <laughs> through the history of restaurants, how they sort of date back to the advent of advanced capitalism in France. Of course, mm. that's why it's called Restaurant, because mm. they... Uh, they originally, yeah, they served you a restorative bone broths and things like that. Fun fact. There's actually an episode of the Antifada where they go into it as well that I'm not on. But uh, mm. but I digress. I have something written down and, here that's and, and, much more and, relevant. And, and, well, But also regarding restaurants in France, be sure to check out our episode on the Paris Commune during the siege about <laughs> restaurants during that time. Oh, yeah. They had some really interesting and exciting cuisine during the uh, siege of Paris. To say the least. <laughs> so, yeah. So, okay, question. How does this save labor time? Because someone still has to do all this stuff, right? Um, I'm going to answer this question uh, because it's much more efficient to collectivize these tasks, right? Like, think about all the food that gets wasted when a single person who lives alone cooks for themselves, Right. right. Jorge and I have both had this experience. Aaron, you might have had it too. Mm -hmm. It's just like much less efficient and also more depressing to cook a meal only for yourself. Right. And, and think of all the hours that everyone spends cleaning their own houses and their own kitchens. Right. Like, I, I don't think it's that hard to see how much labor time it would save for everyone to eat in a communal dining hall, say in the bottom of your building where everybody lives. And uh, maybe you just work in there one shift a week and people are making food in bulk. That's way more efficient than a bunch of people trying to do it on their own. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and can I add to Jamie that uh, real quick, one thing too is that besides like sort of the, you know, exploitation and wage theft that not only happens at like, you know, big chain restaurants, but like these cute, like mom and pop restaurants too, like places that I've worked at. Um, it's also just like, you know, more prone to just people getting sick, man, you know, like less, um, less prone, I guess, to like safety check safety checks and making sure that people are handling food carefully and have the time and attention to, um, yeah. where, yeah, people get sick and, you know, people can possibly even die from it. So, uh, yeah, I definitely think, yeah. uh, a lot safer to have a communal, uh, uh kitchen or public restaurant, you know? Yeah, and one that's yeah. not motivated by profit. Exactly. Right? A lot stomach, of the exactly. reason a lot of the reason why restaurants cut corners is because they want to save money. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I and I think I think, you know, to kind of go back to those four categories that Colin type points in terms of like, you know, cooking, cleaning, washing, and then caring of linen, like you mentioned before, Aaron, about the gig economy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you were saying, Jamie, about how that's kind of like the way, or maybe you could like elaborate a bit more, but you kind of only hinted a little bit at it. Um, but about how it's really just like people who are working women or what have you, or working people who need to kind of uh, find ways to try to catch up in terms of like the the reproductive labor. Mm -hmm. hmm. But um, uh, weren't you going to say something about that, Jamie? Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. We can like chop this up however Paul thinks it makes sense, but. Um, I was basically saying that uh, the solution to this to this problem caused by capitalism, right, that she's been talking about all along, where women are expected to go to work to make money, but also take care of the household at the same time, um, 
the way that capitalism has tried to solve this problem is the gig economy, right? Where either wealthy or not even necessarily wealthy nowadays, it could be a middle class worker mm -hmm. um, who just has more money than the lower strata of workers in society who are really underemployed and precarious. Um, that you pay somebody else, right? You can use an app. It's easy now. You pay somebody else to do your domestic labor for you, to do your childcare for you so you can go to work. But then who's taking care of those people's houses? Who's reproducing right. that class of people? Who's taking care of their kids? Like, it, eventually, the underclass will not be able to reproduce itself any longer. And I think mm -hmm. it shows how unsustainable a uh, model or quote unquote solution that really is. Can, can I speak to that personally yeah. real quick? Is that my mom, um, my mom's from Jamaica and she was a nanny um, for upper middle class white people's families in Manhattan. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to say at all that I didn't have like a sufficient or more than sufficient upbringing. I wasn't well loved and everything. But there were times where I know my mom came from home from work and she was drained. Right. Like she was drained because she had been taking care of somebody else's household and kid all day, you know. Um, so mm -hmm. absolutely, Jamie, that's that's like just to speak to that personally. That's something that I think uh, people don't think about. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And also um, under communism, that kind of work would hopefully be split up a little more fairly, mm -hmm. right? There's not going to be an underclass of people whose only job it is to is who, whose only job is to scrub toilets and take care of the kids of mm -hmm. more fortunate people, right? We're mm -hmm. going to dole it out in a more fair way, uh, much like people say roommates in a household do with the chores that they have now will be a fair way to do this so that it's not just women, poor women, women of color, particularly mm -hmm. doing this type of work. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, what you said about roommates, ideally, but <laughs> that also depends on implementation. <laughs> so communism but, is when but, you have roommates. <laughs> Yeah. Responsible no, roommates I mean, who pick up after shit and pay rent. Actually, there would be no rent. So, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Responsible so, roommates who share the work. Who share the work. The household. So, yeah. But regarding, like, the gay economy point, I think, um, which you're both are mentioning is so important to discuss because, like, th this is this is directly tied to a point regarding domestic labor and families. Mm -hmm. um, while we don't really consider it that way, I mean, that's the only reason why you do that. Apart from, like... Hiring someone to, like, you know, go somewhere, like, in terms of a vehicle or, like, staying somewhere, though, though everything else is relying on, like, the, you know, task rabbit or things like that in terms of, like, getting someone to do a service for you that you normally would not, like, you, you, could, you could do, mm. Mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, you're paying someone to do it. That, that, you know, keeping agnostic, there's a lot of reasons why people pay for something, something like that. Sometimes people are, you know, are not able-bodied to do it, yeah. which is totally a, a fair fair reason. People are too busy, which can be a fair reason. Or you don't reason, have the skills if, you know, like, I mean, for example, like an electrician, right? Or like, I right. mean, you know, anything like that where there's specified skills that somebody may be able to do, right. that's fine, but, you know. Yeah. Or you're just but, exhausted from fucking working all the time. Exactly. Right. right. But I, th but I think what is quite incredible by like this 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 paragraph by Kalantai uh, is like she just so quickly makes the connection between what happens domestically in families with what happens say in restaurants and mm -hmm. kitchens, mm -hmm. like it's all like this the entire same dimension in like all of society. Yeah, it's the personal and the public. Right. Right. So. She then arrives at this amazing conclusion in the end of the section that, quote, thus, the four categories of housework are doomed to extinction 
with the victory of communism, and the working woman will surely have no cause to regret this. Communism liberates women from her domestic slavery and makes her life richer mm-hmm. and happier, mm-hmm. end quote. Hear that? Ladies, you can have it all. Indeed. Hell yeah. Indeed. Hell yeah. Yeah, so um, that really is like the end of this section. Um, there is the this next section was like the last section. So um, if you remember the three points that Colin Ty mentioned, you know, bringing money into the household, she showed in the first section, that, no, that capitalism already accounts for that. You know, that women bring in uh, money into the household, sometimes even more so mm-hmm. than the husband. Could, it can even be the primary breadwinner, it could be the woman. Um, and we all, we, you know, living in capitalism, we know that's not true. We know that's like no longer the case. Um, now, in the second section, she talked about, you know, what she meant by this family economy. Really, what she's talking about, she's talking about, she used the family economy, but really what we kind of would describe it now is social reproduction, mm-hmm. right? Um, the family is no longer needed to be the, the sole uh, mediator and form of the way that social reproduction manifests itself in society. Um, this third point is about the last one, which is actually probably the more, most important thing when people talk about the family, which is the section is called, the state is responsible for the upbringing of children. That's Colin right. Pre- That's right. Colin Tepp preempts a possible criticism, which I think is a fair criticism. Um, uh, in terms of people really care about this and I think should care about it, is that, quote, even if housework disappears, you may argue, there are still the children to look after. Cool. And, you know, the children question, you know, what do we do about all the kids? Mm-hmm. Like, we still need, kids will always exist as long as humans exist. Mm-hmm. That's not, this is not avoidable. Even if you get everything else, you still have to navigate this fundamental biological Yeah, fact. we're not trying to be anti-natalist here, right? <laughs> Everybody right. used to be a baby, remember? <laughs> right. Yeah. Except for me. Remember, I'm Except different. for you guys. Um, you're built yeah, different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So here she points to the responsibility of the collective and the worker state since, quote, the worker state will come to replace the family. Society will gradually take upon itself all the tasks that before the revolution fell to the individual parents, end quote. She points out how even the revolution... However, even before the revolution, this already began to occur since, quote, the instruction of the child had ceased to be the duty of the parents, quote. And basically, she's like, ever heard of public schools? Mm-hmm. And I think that's like, that's a really interesting point because it seems so obvious, but that is so true because like, you know, our parents, I mean, I, I think none of us were homeschooled at all, mm. didn't raise us in terms of education. We were raised in like, you know, schools that were outside of the home. Mm-hmm. So socialism. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think she 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 is like touching on something here in terms of like that. Well, clearly people are familiar if you have public school systems of the idea of socializing upbringing of children in some degree. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and can That's I right. can I bring up a quick um, like um, I guess historical sure. reference to in the United States is that the first public schools were in the South during Reconstruction, right? So um, while we're not yeah. talking about a complete transition from you know, um, a capitalist um, society to, um, you know, a post-capitalist society or slaveocracy or chattel slavery, right, to industrial capitalism and uh, free, like, quote, uh, uh, free labor, I guess. But, like, right. you know, the fact that the Reconstruction was kind of like the inklings or promise of a multiracial social democracy, and one of the most important right. ways to do that was to institute public schools, kind of tells you how important it is for the state to be responsible for not just upbringing children, but the education of all people, right? There's a reason why every single 
successful socialist movement um, and communist movement have, and even those that are not successful yet, mm. um, uh, have always emphasized such a huge emphasis. In fact, it's probably the most dis- one of the most distinguishing features of those movements is the focus on education. Mm-hmm. That's right. Like, like one could say, well. You, you know, it's not actually necessary if you cared about just solely production, but that's not the that's not our goal here. Our goal here is to make everybody into a more uh, emancipated human being. Exactly. Oh, well, I think the U.S. knows the utility in education uh, because, yes, in addition to there are good things about it, there it also serves a function where you sort of propagandize and inculcate certain values in people mm-hmm. and train them to be good workers and right. she openly states that she also wants to propagandize people in uh, Soviet Russia to be good socialists right like it's yeah. not ed- education is not value neutral um and it's no. not just about learning to read and write, right? Like yeah. you are also are teaching people how to be a member of whatever society is providing that education. Exactly. Yeah, I should touch. Should mm. talk about it a bit later. Mm. We'll get to it. Mm. But I mean, like that's that's like people find that really like can have like can get like a little can get the ick a little bit when they hear that. But frankly, it's like. This is just like a fact of all societies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like this has always been the case. It's just a matter of like who. This is kind of back to the you know the Stain Revolution conversation we were having. We can check it out those episodes if you haven't. Um, it's like kind of like a little bit like the state. It's like well, it's really more about like what well, was it for, not so much about whether it should exist or not. I mean, obviously, as communists, eventually we are for the abolition of the state, but that has more to do with class society than it's about the state mm-hmm. abstractly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, and here's like some kind of, I alluded to this earlier about some of the stuff that Soviet Russia had. And I'm like, kind of like, wow, this is really great. She, and here's where she touches on it. She says, it is apparent that quote, just as housework withers away. And that's incredible. She talks about the the withering away of housework. (laughs) That's such a fascinating way to frame it. But I think that makes sense. Just as housework withers away. So the obligations of parents to their children wither away gradually until finally society assumes the full responsibility. She said, fuck them kids. <laughs> Under <laughs> capitalism, children were frequently, too frequently, a heavy and unbearable burden on the proletarian family. And that's actually a really good point if you think about it because like the way a lot of you know, millennials and Zoomers and people uh, and young people in the United States talk about kids is like they there is a disincentivization of wanting to have children mm-hmm. because they view it as like such a f- immense burden. Mm-hmm. Um, we're at, and here she says, quote, common society will come to the aid of the parents. Yeah. And Hori, can I, and then can she, I just in, like interject real quick and mention something that I just thought about is that um, like kind of like the fact that, you know, aside from um, kids being a material burden, right, on parents, right? Like I also think about sort of interpersonal relationships, you know, where maybe there are times where parents come to regret having children because, um, you know, they are overworked, they're tired all the time, they can't afford the kind of life that they want for their kids. So this is sort of another mm-hmm. way that capitalism and its social relations, like, kind of place divisions, right, where they don't need to exist between family members, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, she, she, you know, touching on that, she moves on to, she proceeds to illustrate everything Soviet Russia at that point in 1920 had, which included 
and here's a list. Homes for very small babies, crutches, universal kindergarten, children colonies and homes, hospitals and health resorts for sick children, free lunches at school, and free distribution of textbooks. Something that not even the U.S. has <laughs> yet, really. Mm -hmm. um, warm clothing and shoes to children. Shoes to children. Clothing and shoes to school children. Mm. She points to this to show, quote, that the responsibility for the child is passing from the family to the collective. You know, can I, and you know, you know what that's making me think too. It's not like I've, um, you know, I've donated and been a part of like, um, you know, shoe drives and coat drives like in New York, you know, especially for right. like, um, you know, kids from low income families and stuff. And it's not to say that that is a bad thing. No, but it is also kind mm -hmm. of insane to think that, and we've talked about this before, like replacing charity with what should be done by the state or by the community. You know what I mean? And thinking right. that like this is something that's normal, right? In any in any society, in supposedly advanced, right, civilized society, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think like there can be an argument to be made that like say, like kids like could have like say school uniforms, mm -hmm. but the problem with school uniforms, in my opinion, have more to do with like people having to pay for them individually than if they were just provided to everybody. Then I think. Like, really, it just comes down to, like, self-expression stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know where they provide school uniforms to all the kids? Where? In the Zapatista territories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. I saw them. I saw the kids going to and from the school. And they all had uniforms. And they all looked very nice. And guess what? They don't use money within their own community, which means that they were provided by the collective. See, I, I could go in about school uniforms because I used to go to a, a middle school where I had to wear a school uniform, but because they were not <laughs> provided by the school or by the state, um, there was this kind of, a, there was this kind of, I guess, dimension of conspicuous consumerism where, you know, right. those who got like the best ties and the best material pants and the best shoes, even though we were all wearing the same fucking shit. But it was about, right. you know, who was wearing Polo Ralph Lauren versus who was wearing yep. U.S. Polo Association or some shit like that. You know what I right. mean? Right. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. I <laughs> yeah. went to a middle school. No, I went to a middle school that had the same situation because of and, you know, in some ways, I think it's, it's good that, you know, my experience throughout I had have some positive experiences because then it became like, you know, no one's like trying to dunk on anybody because of like, they have like poor clothing yeah. because like then everyone kind of just looks the same. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, you know, also simplified your life in that sense. Mm -hmm. And especially for parents, particularly Especially. Like parents don't have to worry about getting the like a bunch of clothing for just for school. Mm -hmm. It can have like, people can have their own individual stuff for outside, but, but yeah, what you're describing because it wasn't provided, it ended up being like a, Oh, well, and it's just showing off like how much more expensive their version of the uniform mm -hmm. is than everyone else's is. Mm -hmm. um, but as a digression, um, after accounting for education and upbringing. Oh, so sorry. I skipped ahead. She she breaks down the raising of children into three parts. And I think oh, I think this is this is correct. One, you take care of the baby. You care for a baby like you have to raise the, the baby. Bringing up of the child, if to bring it up into becoming, you know, a, an adult from because you know, baby and a child, there's a distinction. Mm -hmm. Toddlers like that transitional period, mm -hmm. but after you, you know, five year old, seven year old, that's a, that's a, you know, that's mm -hmm. all right. Now you have a child. Yeah, where you're and not just trying to keep them alive anymore either. You're trying to be like have them be like a an, a, a human being in society, right? 
Right. Yeah. So you're bringing them up into like these values and like these habits and all these things, you know, and but then also the third part is like, you know, instruction of the child got to know about stuff. That's why you're in school for so long, because you got to know about the world. So much has happened in history. So much has happened in the world that we know of that, you know, clearly it's not enough for just school because you, we're, we're continually learning. Those of us who are the hosts of this podcast and those of you who are listening. Mm-hmm. Um, so the instruction of the child seems obvious to us how this comes about. This is probably the easiest one to tackle and conceive of. Like, obviously, we're familiar with public education and other forms of public instruction, right? Like, you know, that's, okay, duh. That's like, that's not, that's a no-brainer, right? Um, in a common society, the children will be brought up with the cornucopia of amenities, like, and okay, so that's public instruction, right? But the second one about care, about bringing up children, Colin Ty points to, like, say, you know, this cornucopia of amenities, like, playgrounds and gardens and homes under the supervision of qualified educators who will, quote, offer an environment in which the child can grow up a conscious communist who recognize the need for solidarity, comradeship, mutual help, and loyalty to the collective. You know, this kind of reminds me a little bit of this video that went around the internet um, on Twitter and other places a year ago that was really a litmus test, in my opinion, of how people, one, of like whether or not they're racist, but mm-hmm. also how they view, you know, people being brought up with collective values. There was a video that got huge, you know, was viral for a day. It's about these children in China who were like just playing with like, basically they were going around in a circle and they were bouncing like these basketballs. Oh, yeah. And then, and then like they would all shift right. And then the, the whole point of the game was like everyone needs to keep the balls bouncing. Mm. So they all need to like, move together as a collective and then shift right and then one person moves and the other person takes over the ball yeah. that was like that was left terrifying because those kids were like five years old yeah right like but i cannot like, imagine a group of u.s five-year-olds with the same level of even just like hand-eye coordination <laughs> <laughs> right but i mean i think i think the reason i bring it up is because like you know um it 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 is kind of like a you know even games even children games is like they will do we have to conceive of them a bit differently i right? mean i'm because thinking like, of like hot potato here, here, which maybe not be the right version the exact version but it's like when kids have to pass around a ball without dropping it but i don't know it has like this element of competition to it maybe i'm reading too much yeah, into yeah, it yeah, yeah. versus like actually no, no, everybody I, no. has to have instead of getting away of this thing everybody has to have a turn at it you know what i mean yeah yeah. No, but Aaron, I think I think I, I don't think you are looking at it seriously. Mm-hmm. These things are outgrowth of our society, yeah. right? It's mm-hmm. like everything we're like enmeshed in is an outgrowth of our society. So kind of what she's saying about the family, it's kind of we're looking at society. We have to look at what are things we are worth keeping yeah. and things that are not. Yeah. yeah. And so, get rid of hot I'll potato, you, man. I'll tell you this much. Um <laughs> the non competitive games that my hippie mom bought for me as a kid. Did not prepare me for life in this dog-eat-dog world. (laughs) But maybe someday, maybe someday, we can, everybody can play those kinds of non-competitive games where it's like a contest to be really cooperative. So, like, not a contest. Everybody wins when we all cooperate. Everybody gets a gold star and a medal. Yeah. (laughs) For participation. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, like, I think that's kind of, so, but, you know, I point to that video because, like, you have a lot of people who, either conservatives or reactionaries, who like were were against one because it's like, oh, this is horrifying because like they're like, 
they're like robots, which is, you know, like a standard trope people use about like, uh, about Asian people. Very xenophobic, like, yeah. Right, right. But, but then also I feel like also an element of like, oh God, this is scary because like what that means is like these, you know, these underclass people, people who are like the ordinary people are work, are being raised to work together. Like that, I mean, that is an affront to the foundational aspects of American society yeah. of like individualism above all. Yeah. 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 Um, so hold on uh, a second. Sorry, babe. Can you close the door? Can you close the door, please? Sorry, Maddie's listening to something in the other mm. room and it's bothering me. Mm. What? Hold on. All right. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. No worries. So going back into it. Um, all right. So after accounting for education, you know, we've talked about public schools and an upbringing, as we talked about right now, then what is left for the parents, right? We talked about two of those three things. We work kind of backwards a bit, which makes sense. The closer you are to adulthood, the easier it is to conceive of like what needs to happen. Well, the last thing is one of my answer is raising the baby, the baby. And like, you know, where humans are the most vulnerable, most useless, I would say. <laughs> um, Colin Ty once again offers an answer. The worker state will assist the working mother. Quote, no longer will there be any woman who is alone, who are, she said, who are only any women who are alone. The worker state aims to support every mother, married or unmarried, while she is suckling her child and to establish maternity homes, day nurseries and other such facilities in every city and village in order to give women the opportunity to combine work and society with maternity, end quote. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think one way to look at it is just like we've been talking about sort of the extension of the um, of the bourgeois mother, the extension of the privileges that she's enjoys, but extending them so that they're not privileges, right? But just, you know, like just amenities and necessities for everybody, right? That are provided like collectively, right? right? Instead of you only have the money and status to enjoy this, you know? Yeah, and we've talked about it before. Um, I think either the previous episode in the series or previous episode of this podcast, where we talked about the problem with um, single mothers in our society is not that they're single mothers; it's that they don't get the care that they need. Mm -hmm. And so, Colin is kind of getting at that. It's like from like basically, I mean, she's basically arguing from cradle, like from cradle to uh, coffin, like from birth to death. There's like a someone's taken care of by the worker state and by society uh, large. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and to kind of add to this, it's like, this is this part right here. And the third part of the, of the, of the education is typically what people talk about when they laud, like say social democracies and all that. Mm -hmm. But what they don't, but I think there's this in the middle part, the upbringing, the values, I think is like also something that kind of gets thrown to the wayside because it's not so easily measurable. And I think, you know, people talked about the, like, you know, what happened, what, what uh, the discourse regarding Sweden, but I actually think it's actually very indicative of like, of, you know, the limits of social democracy in terms of changing people's values. And what I'm talking about is like that people got, you know, talked about the fact that it's kind of common practice in Sweden that 
when you when a child is over visiting their friend and their friend family, they don't feed them food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? Yeah, and people were like, and people were trying to go ahead, Tori. Sorry, go ahead, continue. Really? Oh no! But basically, the whole thing is like saying, like, oh yeah, like all the time it's like oh yeah stay here my uh my my parents are are uh making dinner just stay in this room we'll finish eating that's soon. so weird you know you know i saw a tweet i saw a tweet thread and it made me incredibly furious um not to get too distra- too distracted but i actually think this is incredibly relevant i saw this guy yeah. he's a swedish i think he was swedish yeah i think he was swedish and he um talked about sort of why this not feeding like the the children of you know um of other someone else when they come to your home how this is rooted in this idea that under under capitalism i mean it's completely bullshit but the way he described it is under capitalism like there's a lot of patronage you know and there's a lot of fealty being paid forward so that people shouldn't no feel way. people shouldn't feel as if they have to they're, they have to owe someone something, you know what I'm saying? Or they're oh obligated to do something because they've been offered something. But I, I said, one, like my family comes from like a mixture of not just West Africans, right? But indigenous peoples from the Americas that were pre-capitalist societies, right? That were right. not rooted in this transactionalism, first of all. And secondly, like just what about like envisioning a society that moves beyond, right? Um, reacting to or in response just to capitalist social relations, you know, like that's kind of like really fucked up that like you're still operating on this transactionalism, right? That happens under um, capitalist social relations, you know, completely insane. Right. And it, like the the fact that you're viewing it in a transactional way and the way you view all social relations is in fact a capitalist value that you've grown. And that's exactly why brought this up you know I'm, gr- I'm glad you brought that up mm. Aaron, because like this is exactly why i'm bringing it up in a sense that because social democracies at the end of the day are still a very reformed have a human face on mm. it of capitalism you still are in this society have the values and the mores and habits of a capitalist society mm-hmm. so until you're trying to even go raising people and thinking differently and having people behave differently that not in a capitalist society, but in a socialist with an eye to or the communist collective society, you cannot say that you're, oh, yeah, well, no, this is all fine. No, it's not. Yeah, well, that's the idea anyway. I, I do think in practice, uh, people's day-to-day lives under this sort of ascendant state socialist project mm-hmm. might not be that different as they are under a social democratic project. Certainly. But uh, it might... Be it might have the power to transcend uh, the current social relations, which is I mean that's that's I'll, I, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief when I'm reading a text like this and be like okay yeah I follow I follow you. Yeah. I mean at the very least like the trajectories over a long term can end up being different. Yeah, yeah. like social democracy just kind of ends up at a certain point because the foundational base of organized society stays the same. Yeah. And we and, and we, also let's not forget that they can Reagan that shit back at any time as long as right. we still have capitalism. This is true. I think I brought this up in the first um, piece that um the first piece that I had read. Um and again like we should Probably individually, we should. I mean, I don't know. I would be down to watch Born in Flames again and talk about it. But, Jamie, in that movie, which is about a nominal and name-only social democracy, alternate United States in the 1980s, at the end of it, the president of that movie brings back 
domestic work, right? Or brings back, brings back, uh, brings domestic work, been getting paid for domestic work, right? Which furthermore institutionalizes under a nominal supposedly social democracy because the mode of production and the social relations right. haven't really been turned on their head. These right. sorts of oppressions and dominations within interpersonal social relations continue, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the wages for housework movement slash idea slash concept is sort of a a controversial one for that reason. But I think what some people miss is that, um, you know, the, the famous pamphlet by Sylvia Federici, it's not called wages for housework. It's called wages against housework, mm, right? Right. Like by demanding a wage for this kind of domestic labor, that's not the horizon, right? It's just bringing it into the realm of all labor, have, helping people to envision it as work, to make it a site of collective struggle in the same way that the workplace, the formal workplace is. Exactly. Not to alienate it from social reality, right? But to like kind of like um, re-invite it, I guess, into the way that we organize society, right? Yeah. So that Mom. ultimately when we abolish work, that also includes housework. Absolutely. Mom, Mom unions. Um, so, you know, given everything Kalanta has been saying, she does... She is important. She she is keen to mention that she she is empathetic. However, to those who are worried and say, "quote Working mothers have no need to be alarmed. Communists are not intending to take children away from their parents, not, or to tear the baby from the breast of its mother, like, and neither are planning to take violent measures to destroy the family. They're not you know we're not going to be going to people's homes and ripping your children out their homes <laughs> and putting them into like yeah as into, long like, as you're working. She says working mothers, you know, non-working mothers may, might have to do some work outside of the home. Yeah, so rather than all of this, common society is merely saying, and this is, a, I think, actually quite quite beautiful phrase. You're young, you love each other, everyone has the right to happiness, therefore live your life. Do not flee happiness. Do not fear marriage, even though under capitalism, marriage was truly a chain of sorrow. Do not be afraid of having children. Society needs more workers and rejoices at the birth of every child. You do not have to worry about the future of your child. Your child will not know neither hunger nor cold. Mm. So there's other, and from here on out, I'm just going to be reading like these, uh, the passage as it ends in the, in the, in the, in the piece. Um, Cause I think I thought that it was better to just read it um, as written. Yeah. I it's think. some good shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so it's going to be a long passage, but basically, there is no escaping the fact. The old type of family has had its day. The family is withering away, not because it is being forcibly destroyed by the state, but because the family is ceasing to be a necessity. The worker mother must learn not to differentiate between yours and mine. She must remember that there are only our children, the children of Russia's communist workers. And she ends it with this last passage. The worker state needs new relations between the sexes, just as the narrow and exclusive affection of the mother for her own children must expand until it extends to all the children of the great proletarian family. The indissoluble marriage based on the servitude of women is replaced by a free union of two equal members of the worker state who are united by love and mutual respect. Something I, might, I want to mention is like the way, the language she even uses allows for beyond like a heterosexual and even like specific gender normative like perspective. Mm -hmm. um, in place of the individual and egoistic family, a great universal family of workers will develop in which all the workers, men and women, 
above all be comrades. This is what relations between men and women in the communist society will be like. These new relations will ensure for humanity all the joys of a love unknown in the commercial society of a love that is free and based on the true social equality of the partners. Communist society wants, wants, to br wants bright, healthy children and strong, happy young people, free in their feelings and affections. In the name of equality, liberty, and the comradely love of the new marriage, we call upon the working and peasant men and women to apply themselves courageously and with faith to the work of rebuilding human society in order to render it more perfect, more just, and more capable of ensuring the individual the happiness which he or she deserves. The red flag of the social revolution which flies above Russia and is now being hoisted aloft in other countries of the world proclaim the approach of the heaven on earth to which humanity has been aspiring for centuries. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So good. Hell so yeah. good. So good. Okay, so uh, unfortunately, Russia never fully, fully realized this project, which is something that she, you know, fully owns up to. She's like, you know, we don't have a lot of resources. We're working on it. However, even the measures that Russia was able to take like everything you just described, Jorge, all the supports for parents, for moms, for child rearing, it made a big difference in women's lives, especially. And right. we can see that in a bunch of different ways. But one thing that I really like to bring up is the uh, the fact that women had better sex mm -hmm. under socialism. True. Oh, my God. And we know this because they did a, they did a study, a survey after reunification in 1990 of women from East and West Germany and found out that the East German women were having more orgasms and reporting better sex. And uh, I think it seems only logical that if women don't need men to support them, if they don't need them to, uh, if their survival doesn't depend on uh, a man, then they would be free, like Kolontai says, to choose partners that they really enjoy spending time with. And, you know, men, on the other hand, um, wouldn't be able to just buy themselves a wife, uh, right? They would be forced to become better partners in order to right. attract a mate. You know, you mm. gotta be, uh, you gotta be charming. You gotta be good at sex. You mm. gotta be. Oh my God, Maddie is just pointing to himself <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be Maddie. Basically, <laughs> is what I'm saying. Um, so, but but I think an important part here is like, um, you know, this is also kind of. What's interesting is that this is also, if you consider it, includes the popular conception of, say, Russian women. Like, a, like if you think about it, like the way a lot of popular media in, in the West conceive of Russian women as like independent, like cold, like cold, mm -hmm. but like but you know, very serious women, but also sexually emancipated, mm -hmm. yeah. like like. And they were coming twenty four seven. I mean, I think, I, and I think this probably has something to do, with, like you know, what you're talking about, Jamie, in a sense of like, well, if like they were brought up in a society where women are much more like you know economically free, mm -hmm. don't need to be around with any man that they don't really want to, but then, but then, kind of cold in a sense of like, well, I mean, do you have, if you're talking to me, you guys, get to your fucking point. Like, I don't want to like waste my time talking to some loser. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, and but, sorry, go on. No, it's just like, but, you know, they don't have any issue with, like, just having sex with someone mm -hmm. because that's not really, like, something that they, that's, like, really a concern. It's like, why do you care? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, um, 
like I said, Russia wasn't perfect, right? They also had to deal with a lot of uh, material deprivation. But yep. if even these basic kinds of reforms can achieve these results, imagine what full communism could do for your sex life. <laughs> That's right. Just, just, big, just one big orgasm. orgasm That's what it would be a, a societal orgiastic orgasm. That's what it would be. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Um, yeah, so that that's the text. Is there anything else people wanted to bring up? Oh yeah. All right. I got some comments. I got some All critiques. Right. I got right. some let's just vibe, see how it goes. So um yeah, I think she's struck a really nice balance here between public and private responsibility for children, right? Since you know, I don't know what people are gonna be like in the future, but I feel like people might always wanna be parents to kids on some level at least some people will mm, uh, sure. and in terms of like you know knowing who your kids are even if you're not like taking care of them a hundred percent of the time you know you want to like see them at the end of the day <laughs> talk to them. I don't have kids, but it sounds like a nice thing to do. Right. And, you know, studies have also shown that infants benefit from having at least one or a small number of adults that bond with them and pay attention to them when they're developing their brains in their early years. Um, so I think that's a nice balance because um, there are some wacky, I mean, Going back to the the Bolshevik times, like this isn't just like a modern occurrence. People who thought, oh, well, maybe parents shouldn't be in charge of raising their kids at all. Maybe they're too like emotional. They're too close to the issue. You know, we need professionals to do it. That doesn't sound good to me. Hmm. Um, but this uh, this kind of balance of public and private sounds, yeah, that sounds like very human. It sounds reasonable. Um, but it doesn't have to be achieved only by blood ties, right? Um, and, and, you know, I'm speaking at a time when technology has progressed. Uh, we have baby formula now so that uh, moms don't have to nurse their infants around the clock if they are unwilling or incapable of doing so. Mm. Um, and it's even possible we could, like, split up this work a little bit, right? Like, we have adoption now. Uh, and, you know, the way that it plays out in our current world is, like, often bad and mediated by capitalism. But um, in future world, it's possible, hey, some people might enjoy the work of gestating babies. Like, pregnancy hormones are, like, the best drugs ever for some people. Mm. Some people really like being pregnant. Uh, but maybe they don't want to raise all these babies. So they're like, hey, you know what? This could be what I do for society. Mm. Um, while other people, they might be a little bit, uh, they might be incapable of gestation. Maybe they're a same-sex couple. You know, maybe they're queer or trans. Or maybe they're just a person like me who's like, hey, you know what? That sounds horrible. Like, I want <laughs> kids, but everything that happens to your body to get the kids sounds awful, and I don't want to fucking do it. Um, and you know what? That's fine, too. Um, I think it was a bit of a hot topic on Twitter recently and like periodically people like to use her as the punching bag. But I think um, Sophie Lewis's book, Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family, has some really interesting arguments in this uh, in this arena, in, up to and including uh, artificial wombs. Mm. Look, guys, it's possible when we have a future where everyone's really liberated and we're like 
biological motherhood and you know what maybe even biological womanhood doesn't have this sort of special magical vaunted status anymore which you know as as a cis woman i don't necessarily want or benefit from all these all, all this discourse about like my sacred passage you know how like it's all about the you gotta have a baby come out your vagina. Like, who cares? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't. It's creepy. Um, I mean, I, I, foundationally, is like, just fundamentally, I think, pretty trans-exclusionary too. Yeah, yeah. I, I, of course, obviously. So in this case, I think you know, artificial wombs could be a really important thing if we're gonna have true freedom and equality for you know both people who can get pregnant as well as queer and trans people who can't reproduce the old-fashioned way uh, necessarily and I think it would benefit everybody and people really deserve some fucking choices and you know what we would have them by now if we didn't have god if you want to get mad <laughs> you can read like these fucking male it's always it's always men but i'm sure there's women who think this too like these bioethicists mm. who are like yeah i don't think the research on artificial wombs should go any further because it's just like it's really troubling it's going to sever the bond between mother and child uh mm. ever heard of adoption yeah, that's a right. thing Mm -hmm. that's a thing that exists now and the parents of adopted children are just as much parents as the mm -hmm. parents of uh, non-adopted children mm -hmm. uh, but, 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 but anyway we could have them by now and we will have them in the future when feminists are controlling uh, <laughs> what gets made and studied oh, yeah. but also I think what you're adding to, add to what you said Jamie I think this is part of like the discussion we have about the family because it's I don't know. Like there, there are friends and people who are not my biological relative that I find are much closer to this definition of family than I do of like people who I'm related to. And again, mm -hmm. this is not like this is not like to suggest that I oh I'm like alienated from my family. Um, rather, it's just this is like a thing that's like true for a lot of people. It's like people who are like oh yeah only my family is like I care about. That's like a very small group of people that like that's their like reality, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's not to suggest that like that's bad. In fact, I'm making like a value neutral statement. Like it not, nothing to do with like whether it's good or bad. Rather, it's like we have to be considering that the fa family is much larger than that. And mm -hmm. to what you're saying about severing, uh, you know, people who like bemoan like the severing of like women to like child or what have you. It's like just nonsense in the sense of. I don't know. Anyone has like a big family that is not in a nuclear family can tell you that many ways like their cousins or their uncle are more similar to like or their grandparents or what have you are more similar to like what they would view as like brothers or parents or like children. Like it's I don't know. There are people who are raised by their grandparents mm -hmm. or people who are raised by their uncle. There are people who are like um, who they people who aren't even related to them. They're like, oh, yeah, that's my uncle. Yeah. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. like it just like it's not. No, it's like obviously these are things that are uh, people latch on to these words because like the closest thing they can they can like cohere this. But it is kind of pointing to this idea that it's like it's more than just like just like oh just like the immediate blood relation than what society tells you. It's much more about you know community. That mm -hmm. ass. I have a bit of a critique, too, if I may. Mm -hmm, please, go for it. So this is like, 
I'm going to get into this a lot more in my section, uh, in my reading, because I think it's like a major theme. But um, yeah, the only thing that I would sort of caution against, right, is that work or, you know, participation in the formal production economy is not the only reason why people deserve support for parenting for bringing up kids, et cetera, right? Like, mm -hmm. people have a right to these things, not because they are workers, uh, although most people are workers and most people would be working in a communist society. Um, people have a right to them because we have intrinsic value as human beings and because there is a social benefit to kids being raised communally, whether no matter how much work their parents are doing. So... Um, this is an ethos. I definitely want to do an episode on this. I already the I already did one on the Antifada, and we also did teaching as part of Emerge. But um, the National Welfare Rights Organization was a network of single moms, uh, mostly women of color, in the 60s and 70s, who demanded a right to a dignified life, whether or not they were formally formally employed, right? And a lot of the time, this took the form of welfare, um, collecting the maximum amount. Uh, of welfare that they were owed. Um, granted, under communism, the vocational options would be much more appealing and varied, right? And there would not be a class of people whose only options of work outside the home were like, oh, you can clean rich people's houses and take care of rich people's kids. But still, I think it pointed in some very radical um, anti-work directions that I think are very... Uh, important and fertile grounds for communists to be uh, pursuing to this day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why I, this entered into my, my head, but when you said, like, human beings, I just, I just for some reason, imagine, like, Bolshevik Bernie be like, Listen, I think, I think <laughs> Comrade Kolontai has a lot of good points, but she does not consider that th you should be getting this not because you work, but because you're a human being, okay? <laughs> well, I, I wanna, That's right. I want to point out one thing, too, I think... Um, Cause I thought I picked up on that Jamie too, because um, she also uses the term, which we use to worker state interchangeably with communism. But I think though, I think the best way to look at it is sort of when we were doing critique of the Gotha program and Marx is critiquing this idea that, um, that labor is owed something, right. Or even this idea that communism would be a worker state in the sense where people would trade their labor, right. For necessities or amenities. Um, I, I think like, yeah, I don't I don't even though Colin Ty uses the term work and sort of this sort of participation in formal economy. I do think that she is. I mean, she doesn't say, but I think she's conscious of the fact that like, yeah, it's not like obviously under communism. I mean, we provide for people who can't work. Right. Like there's like a collective welfare that provides for people that can't. So. But yeah, for, to clarify that more, Jamie, I do agree with that point, because uh, that sounds a little bit sus. Right. That only the people who work and produce should be able to uh, share in the benefit of something as uh, as important as childcare, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, what if you want to not do any productive labor that day or reproductive labor? What if you just need to take some time out to, uh, I don't know, fucking daydream, travel the world, mm -hmm. catch up on sleep? Like, to that's fine, too. But I do think that this is like... This is a higher stage communism thing, right? Yeah, yeah. This is right. a thing that needs to be reached um, once we have reached sort of a post-scarcity world, which is not the world that Kolontai was operating in, mm -hmm. but right. I think it could be the world that we are operating in in the very near future. Possibly, mm -hmm. hopefully. 
to be, to be determined. But I will say, um, even the reality in the Soviet Union, I remember um, reading, this is something that Michael Parenti mentions in uh, Black Shirts and Reds, that in like the daily life of even like you know in the 70s and 80s in the Soviet Union there were there were, there were a lot of uh, you know there, there was scarcity of some resources but not to the extent that people will tell you in the West that was the case but the way that people approached their jobs in the Soviet Union from what I, from what Michael Prenti is describing is quite it's really funny like basically people would like say there was like a real problem that was existing in society to have people just stay at their job. Like mm-hmm. not that to go work, people would go to work, mm. but people were just like, all right, I'm going to just take a three hour break to go shopping <laughs> just because I just know. And it's like, and it's like, and then like contrary to what they, people would say, there wasn't really any mechanism to stop them from doing that. They're just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to fuck off. Okay. Sounds or, good. Or like, or like, well, I mean, you know, there's, there's like there's like a there's like a range of it too. Like you know, un, good good uh, an example he brings up of like the real contradictions of this of like workers' rights, but then also having to the problems of having to keep functioning society is like um, like a person who like was working at the front desk of, of of I think it was like either a hotel or like some some office that you know trying uh, people wanted to like kind of check in like it was like a big line growing, and it, people had to wait like hours because the front like the the de- the front like the desk clerk just kept using their phone for their own personal life. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Sounds good to me. This is the thing, man. Is that like we know that like you know you could cut the work day or the work week rather in half. And right. I mean, really, I mean, depends on the job, of course. But I mean, like you don't need to be at a job for an eight hours a day, right? I mean, oh, like no. some jobs may be four hours, some might be six. But like, I yeah, mean, man, like you stay the job, there for four fair. hours and then you know uh, make that a. Uh, 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 make that money and uh, make that a uh, produce and walk the fuck out, you know, and have the rest I of think, your day to I yourself. Think, I think part of the, those problems, like I think like, for example, like the death clerk for issue one, I think actually is like a bit closer to of it being a more of a real problem of like, if you need to, like you need to go somewhere else mm-hmm. that, you know, yeah. that you're, you're not able because this person just keeps calling. Just, like the story that Parenti brings up is like, they were just gossiping for like an hour. Yeah. Like they weren't like, they were like not Ooh, like. Which people already man. do at work eight hours a right. fucking day because they don't spend, right. like I said, the whole eight hours like right. fucking doing, I mean, it's the surplus value, right? Like they shave off right. like half of that and give it back to yeah. you in the form of a wage. Whereas like right. the rest of the time you could just be doing whatever you want, man. Right. But the, the point I want to bring up is like, you know, I do think it is like a problem if like if it interferes to function society. But I think the solution, I think, is just and I think this is probably a critique of at least partially in terms of like the way the Soviet Union ran is like feeling like people had to just had to be there all the time. It's like, well, maybe they don't. Yeah, maybe they don't. Maybe you, maybe they're like, okay, you get a shorter work day and then you just go home. Yeah. And like I think that's, I think that's part of it. It's like you just have shorter work days and like people would be more focused in the time they are. And there. I think circle back to the text. That's the same for like childcare, right? It doesn't need right. to be like burdened on to like, you know, like um the mother alone, right? Or the parent alone, the mother alone. It can be like a shared societal effort, you know, so that people oh. can like 
I don't know, man. I think it's fun if you want to drop your kids off at the communal daycare center and like, you know, go have a day at the lake or the pond with your boo thing, you know, a little picnic or something. Families already do that. Think about think about growing up as a kid in in the summer. What would your parents do to come? Like, think about the fucking shit they would come up in their head of creative ways to try to get rid of summer camp. I went to sleep. I went to sleep away camp for a month every summer when I was a kid and I fucking loved it. Yeah, like. Families already do this. Yeah, they Is already do like this. Some, like, Except they do like, it. They do it under this system to like more often than not get rid of their fucking kids because like they're stressed out. You know what I'm saying? Because right. they're working like you know five to six days a week for like right. eight to yeah. ten hours, and they want to get rid of their children instead of you know doing it in a positive way where it's like, oh, we have like you know this communal daycare or summer camp. Also, I right. went to summer camp and had to pay for that shit. Also, pretty fucking insane, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, also, it's like some yeah, it's something people do when they can afford it, and right. uh, there, there's always like a few scholarships offered at camp, uh, at, at least at the camp that I went to, because it was like really expensive, and they mm-hmm. didn't want only um, they wanted a, a slightly better mix. So more social reproduction then, right? Yeah, but like, <laughs> like rich people enjoy this already. Like mm-hmm. we've been talking right. about. This is, her, this is her point. Like, this is her point. This already happens for the rich. Yeah, mm-hmm. it already happens. They send their kids to a nice camp. It's a nurturing environment. It's good for the kids. You know, it's good for the parents. Or I don't know. Maybe my parents just spent every night like crying that I wasn't there. But I'm pretty sure <laughs> they uh, had a nice little break for me as well. Uh, and then, yeah, let's just fucking make it so that everybody has that. Yeah, I think, you know, there's two things. One is, like, I think there's also an argument to be made that there's, like, a like a parent's rights point of view. Parents should also have the right to, like, have time away from their fucking kids. Mm-hmm. Like, it should not monopolize your life. Because I think it's, like, people joke a lot about, like, you know, parents, people become parents and then that's it. They're... They're, they just get stuck to the time they had kids. Yeah. Like, the, yeah. Like, yeah. like if you're, yeah. you're not supposed to do this by yourself. Like yeah. for the vast majority, human babies are so fucking helpless, right? Like I've been, I've been researching this a little bit cause I'm thinking about it, you know, rearranging my life in various ways so that maybe I can be a mom in a few years. It's like, all right, giraffes are born and they can like fucking walk already human babies are totally helpless they're not done yet like we need to gestate for at least three more months for human babies to be like any good at all so they're very very demanding and uh it used to be that everybody in the community would raise the babies together in hunter-gatherer world right like i read about um i read it in sex at dawn by christopher ryan Mm -hmm. that uh there are some societies some hunter-gatherer societies where they didn't uh they didn't realize yet that one sperm makes one baby. So like the woman would have sex with a bunch of different men mm. who had all the best qualities that they wanted for their baby. You know, she'd like have sex with the strongest man and the funniest man mm. and the hottest man or whatever. And then, uh, you know, they would raise the kids communally thinking that they were all the dads. And you know what? Maybe the kids did take on the characteristics of uh, of all these men because it's like nature and nurture. You know, they were, raised, they were raised, raised by all of them. Yeah. You're being raised by them. You, you, you know, maybe maybe like the like hottest like one. The those right. characteristics wouldn't uh, necessarily <laughs> maybe be not passed quite. down. No. Ho- hopefully, that's the sperm that actually makes it into the egg. <laughs> no, I mean, it be, I mean, it, I mean, like to kind of think about it, it's like you know, it's like Mama Mia, right? It's like if you have the three dads, right? It's like you have. Oh, the funny one. Oh, well, you'll learn 
to get their sense of humor. The the jock will teach you how to work out, and the one with like the, like the most attractive will teach you a skincare routine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sounds good. But I mean, the other thing I wanted to mention though, um, I'm trying to remember actually. Um, honestly, totally forgot. Mm. Sorry, what were you gonna say, Aaron? I feel like no, I interrupted you. No, no, no. I wasn't. Uh, no, I wasn't gonna say anything besides like again to kind of reiterate like. Like what's been helpful for me and sort of learning about like how society would function differently under socialism or communism is like, I mean, we said it again and again, but sort of like um, um, widening that that sort of I don't even want to call it privilege because people that can afford it have the privileges of like housekeepers, have the privileges of babysitters, have the privileges to send their kids to like a fancy school. But just sort of thinking about it as like expanding this to like the working class right like because these things are already enjoyed as you were saying as well a minute ago jorge by a certain class of people that's not an inherently bad yeah. thing why can't we extend this to everybody you know which uh yeah. I, rem I remember my point now yeah um, sure. the, the second thing i want to mention which is kind of what you were just saying mm -hmm. aaron is and also jamie mentioned before is i'm reminded of something that um someone i think is a great intellectual figure in our movement um who's becoming more prominent and more and more um is vj prashad mm. and he has this quite excellent way of phrasing it he's like listen those of us who are communists we are not against first class we're against economy class mm. <laughs> everyone should have access to that mm -hmm. like first yeah. class it's like it's like that that's not the problem. The problem is that, that there exists a coach class. Exactly. Yeah. Put everybody in the first class and then uh I mean look, I guess it wouldn't be first class anymore. It would just be right. like everybody has a nice ride on the airplane and some for for a lot of people that would be enough, right? Because there's relative privilege, which is like privilege in relationship to other people, and then there's absolute privilege, right? Mm. So uh, if you increase the the quality of life of everybody, uh, yeah, nobody would be able to enjoy it on the level of I have something that other people don't. But I really feel like that's not why most people like to have things. <laughs> like, I feel like most people would just if be you happy do, that sick. they have enough to fucking eat and uh, maybe get over that uh, that urge to, you know, be better than other people. Yeah, I, I I do sincerely think you know this is kind of a little bit of a out there idea, but like I do think that that kind of impulse is a little bit pathological. Mm -hmm. mm. But um, regardless, this was the this was this was the communism in the family. Mm -hmm. Hope you all liked it. I liked it. I, I liked it a lot. I enjoyed it. Um, again, as I said earlier, you know I hadn't read any Kalantai before this, um, and. You know, just thinking about things that, you know, Marx never really got the time to really elaborate or Engels did really in depth, you know. And um, I think for anybody who's a budding leftist, socialist, communist, um, anybody on the left at all, I mean, liberals would do very well to read this as well, but they fucking won't, um, you know, which is kind of like um, the implication sort of in the piece that I had read, right? Why liberals, feminists kind of buck up against like a, the socialist except sort of the conception. liberal listening to go this. ahead Jorge, would you say sorry except the liberal listening to exactly this. For, yeah but y'all are different I, I liked it a lot man you know uh i think it's important to kind of the same way i guess uh now that i'm comparing colin todd to a, a white man but mark fisher talks about um 
And, you know, people like Frederick Jameson as well, Stuart Hall, talk about capitalist culture and media in a way that Marx couldn't even envision or talk about. And I think Kalantai sort of folks like her, people like her, especially her, she does the same thing for, you know, concepts like feminism and the family under communism, which um, aren't talked about enough, man, except in... Um, insane tweets um about what would what society would look like under communism right nobody knows folks but kalantai has a some pretty pretty good ideas i think yeah yeah she certainly does and i think i think it could really be a good way in too for sort of uh liberal feminists who are like socialism curious right Mm, because the two ways that i came into the left really were anti-work right I don't like being forced to do wage labor. Oh, wow. It seems like most people don't like being forced to do wage labor. Mm. Um, Maybe we should do something about that. As well as feminism, right? As a woman, quote, as a woman. As a woman, quote. uh, (laughs) I I was interested in, you know, feminism and equality. And then I realized, oh, hey, we can't really have... Uh, gender equality. We can't have women's liberation without economic equality, without economic liberation. So I think if you are into feminism, this could be a really nice way to get into socialism as well. Indeed. Oh, yeah. Indeed. Indeed. And and on that note, this ends the second episode of our series on social feminism. Be sure to look out for our third episode where we will talk about another text by Alexander Kolontai. And this one will be led by Jamie. Oh, That's yeah. right. Until next time, do the reading. Do the reading. reading. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.